Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And we're here with Greg Strawbridge. Greg, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. You are uh, the person that we felt like we knew best and could engage most meaningfully around the legacy of, of the, the great R.C. Sproul of blessed memory now, um, recently. Yeah, yes, yesterday, right? Yeah. He died yesterday. Yeah. Yep. So, Greg, tell us, uh, spend a minute telling, no, 30 seconds. Ah, I'll give you 38 seconds to tell, you, <laughs> tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm the pastor of All Saints Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Our church has the, the honor, I think, of receiving the legacy of R.C. Sproul's liturgy. R.C. Sproul wrote the liturgy for St. Paul Presbyterian Church in Orlando, and our founding elder brought that liturgy to us, and that's a pretty important legacy. Now, of course, I've been influenced by his teaching and various seminars and things like that over the years, but I do think that in a certain sense, the best legacy is the shaping of the people through through worship. And honestly, our church, and I could tell you another about another church, but uh, has been shaped by that. Wow. I mean, I, I don't think that's, I've not heard that. I, I don't think anybody. I would. think a lot of people probably would not be aware of that dimension of what he did. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I think for a lot of people, R.C. Sproul was a formative figure. For most people, let's be honest, not liturgically. Right. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's a fair thing to say, right? I mean, among, I mean, Greg, actually, your end of Christendom, as far as conservative, evangelical kind of reformed denominations, uh, is much more known for liturgical innovation, development, cultivation than, than the, our friends from Ligonier. But he is known as somebody who I think shaped a lot of people's faith. I mean, I, I mean, I think thinking, I thinking, or, or, yeah. or thinking, yeah, or and just approach to probably Christian. Yeah, I, I think there was a lot of us who were evangelicals in the seventies, um, in eighties, who you know, I particularly came out of a more revivalist tradition, and uh, I've often said for many evangelicals, one of the first intellectual conversions is to Calvinism, because if you're looking for something, if you're you know, you come out of a revivalist or an experiential faith, and you're looking for some kind of theological system uh, that helps you make sense of the Bible, then many people, you know, they uh, you know either fall into or jump into uh, the Reformed tradition, and R.C. Sproul was a particularly influential person, uh, not without controversy, but someone who was in a prominent position. Many of us who were struggling to begin to try to think some kind of critical approach to the Bible, his little knowing scripture for Intervarsity Press, many of us read that, that, that began, a journey, began a journey for me to begin to think about, you know, you know what is the what, you know, what is the, the givens and what are your presuppositions when you come to scripture. So I think he was an important apologist um, and almost an evangelism, evangelist for a particular reformed approach to things. And, you know, I was exposed to him first through the Ligonier stuff. Uh, I was Young Life Area Director and the Pittsburgh folks, of course, right next to Ligonier, were very taken by him and uh, heard him speak in those contexts. And certainly the guys I worked with were always listening to Ligonier tapes and things like that. So I think, you know, R.C. Sproul helped me come into a kind of particular reformed position. And my critical engagement with him also helped me move out of that particular <laughs> position as well. So, Are you saying he was a, a halfway house? Well, he was, he was a transitional. He was a transitional influence for for me, and I'm sure many other people. And a lot of people didn't transition away from him. So, yeah. Greg, what about you? Other than the fact that you are a liturgical inheritor, 
so to speak, of Sproul. What has your engagement with Sproul been like? Well, let me give you a little story. This is a family story, but I hope it's a joke, but it's fun. I have a Korean sister-in-law. My brother's married to a Korean woman, and she is very straightforward and, and uh, has offended everybody in our family at one, once or twice over the years now. What, what I, sister-in-law I, I, has it? And, and, it sounds like someone I'd like to meet. And, <laughs> you know, and she's, she's a wonderful person, and she's a believer, and she's been faithful to the Lord. But, but uh, my daughter, my, my middle daughter, when she was going through that spurt of growth in her teens – uh, my sister-in-law saw her at one point and then she saw her like a couple of years later. And at a couple of years later, she, she met her and said, and you know, she'd grown inches and, and it got gotten thinner and prettier and so forth. And so my sister-in-law said, you so pretty now. <laughs> 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 and, now, and now. then, uh, and then, uh, you know, we all kind of joke about that, but it's sort of like, you know, we so liturgical now, you know, we, we've developed so much now, you know, we, we started with something that RC did years ago, 20 years ago, basically. And now I think we've, we've built upon the foundation of that. And I think that's a good thing. And I think a lot of folks have. But he was a, a high Presbyterian in terms of what liturgy should look like and what worship will. And that's not, I wouldn't say that's the end, but I would say that's no, but a But would good you foundation. say a sacrament, when you say high, like, I mean, definitely worship for yeah. R.C. Sproul wouldn't look like Willow Creek, but I wouldn't think he'd be weekly Eucharist type of, and all. No, he was. Eucharist. He was. St. Paul Presbyterian Church in Orlando had weekly Eucharist. All right, I stand a, corrected. A traditional he, Presbyterian he, liturgy with weekly communion and with, um, a, a, I guess, probably one dimension would be uh, what we call prescribed worship. So lots of things that people say together. Re, you know, you're responding immediately to people. You know, your, your, your confession of sin is written down, all those things. You can check it. I don't know where St. Paul is today. I've met a few of their leaders over the years, but that's where they started. And they started with a, a liturgy that was um, prescribed and had weekly communion. And that, that was transported to us and to another church that I'm aware of. And that's a good foundation. I'm not, I, I, I myself want to go a little further than that, but I think, uh, and we've done that, but that's we're, that was a good foundation. And I'm grateful for that, and, and really, that was the direct work of of R.C. Sproul. Where do, where do you where do you place him in the evangelical? You know, I mean, if you we try to position him in a particular historical, per, I mean, there's, I mean, again, you know, it's it's good to praise people when they die. I mean, there's been certainly a lot of hyperbole about him. Where would you place him in in the context of what was going on theologically, culturally, ecclesiastically uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s? I know he was a big campaigner to get PCUSA churches to pull out of the PCUSA. I mean, that's part of what he was doing down in the South for both some people championing him for that. Some people, you know, had some issues with that, but where would you, where would you place him in terms of his influence? Well, certainly, I mean, I don't think you can overstate his influence because um, there's been a whole generation of guys, uh, Sproul, certainly John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, a lot of these guys in, in that vintage of time, that, that just made a tremendous influence on the evangelical world. With, in the case of, you know, you, you can deconstruct all of these, but in the case of Sproul, I mean, he had a passion for transmitting a reformed faith and transmitting 
some important components of the Reformed faith. I don't think, of course, that that was like flawlessly, you know, done. Right. But I, right. I think that there are, you know, tremendous contributions. You know, um, I wrote a chapter in an important textbook, uh, the Omnibus series for classical education stuff on chosen by God years ago. And I think that like that book is a very important book and it just deals with the basic idea of God's control in the world. And I think that, you know, he, but he wrote like 90 books like that. Knowing, knowing scripture is one of those books, right. you know, from years ago. And there are just many other ones. Um, so I, I think he's influenced a lot of people and he's gotten to the place, he had gotten to the place, you know, before his death that he, you know, most evangelical Christians, I think, would have, have had some primary, secondary, tertiary influence from Sproul in, in yeah. terms of, you know, bringing the Reformed faith, bringing the Bible. I read, I just sent out to my congregation a notification, oh, R.C. Sproul's died and, and here's the, article that tells about that and I and I read through the article from Christianity Today and that article indicated something I did not know which is that the one of the first Ligonier conferences led to the 1978 statement Chicago statement on inerrancy so you know, inerrancy, you know, you guys, I'm not sure where you guys are on that, but in terms oh, of... Oh, you know, you know, Greg. <laughs> Deep in your heart, you know. I, okay. I have no problem with inerrancy, as long as uh, I can define uh, Okay, it. but, you know... Uh, <laughs> as long as I can define what an error is. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but in... Okay, whatever you say about that, but, you know, in terms of a major evangelical position that arose, you know, in a conciliar kind of event, 1978, uh, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, you know... It, captured the hearts and minds of evangelicals, and that has been one of the things that's sustained groups like the Evangelical Theological Society. But that started with R.C. Sproul. I didn't, I didn't know that. But Sproul's first conference... Uh, you know, dealt with that. Yeah, I always, I, remember, I, I listened to that. I remember listening to those. Things. I, I always associated that with ago. Norman Geisler, but but actually, Sproul had a more form. I, from what I can read, Sproul had a more formative influence on a that. philosopher so, from Cairn University once came in to me and said, "I figured out what I am. You've pushed my thinking. I'm a dispensationalist Thomist," which I almost thought, "Oh, the worst of all worlds." But then, but I actually said. Well, then you're Norm Geisler. <laughs> That's right. But it's funny, uh, in the spirit of that kind of uh, Hubert, like R.C. Sproul a few years ago, I think it was at a conference at 10th Prez, was asked um, what he wanted written on his tombstone. And he said, I told you I was sick. <laughs> yeah. He did have, I mean, the guy did have no, a he, sense of humor. He was funny. No, he was, he, I think part, he was a, he was a popularizer of theology. Yeah. And yeah, yeah it's interesting because right. Lig Ligonier's yeah. own tribute to him said that through his teaching ministry, many of us learned that God is bigger than we knew. Our sin is more deeply rooted than we imagined. And the grace of God in Jesus Christ is overwhelming. And and you could say that yeah. the, the, the in some ways that is the Reformation legacy, but you could trace it all the way back to Augustine with some of these sure, things. Yeah, and, 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 you and, could, and, you and you could say American Christianity. Uh, you could trace that back to St. Francis. Or, wait, or St. Francis, but yeah. I went going all the way earlier oh, to yeah, Augustine. But, well, yeah, but I mean, I, you could say, though, that a lot of times... I, I would go back to Jesus, but go ahead. We can go back to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Brad, yeah, there was this uh, idea that you know that, that uh, the way they taught you to preach um, sermons at Union Seminary in the early half of the 20th century. Was, well, you get a quote from the New Yorker, a quote from the Atlantic, quote from the, and then you conclude it with, "But perhaps Jesus said it best." <laughs> 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 
You don't necessarily need the Bible, but you just kind of say that. Like, yeah. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. But yeah. Uh, you think but, about, but wait, a Scott, lot of- Scott, let me interrupt you because you studied at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, right? Right. I mean, the the and, the the footprint is and, large, and you right? understand. Do you see the connection? Yeah. No, it's funny because he was R.C. Sproul went to Westminster College, right? Mm-hmm. And he went there not for the religion program or anything like that, but because of the football team, which was not stellar. Which I don't know what that said about R.C.'s football, really. But you go he, where you go where they let you play. I really yeah, cannot imagine R.C. Sproul playing football, but that would be a great. He was a scratch video, golfer. You know, clip. He was a scratch golfer, but. Uh, he said he was converted by the football captain's ministry, and yeah. <laughs> the football captain quoted Ecclesiastes eleven three: "Whether a tree falls to the south or north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie." And he said, "I I just feel I'm the only person in church history that was converted by that verse. God just took that verse and struck my soul with it. I saw myself as a log that was rotting in the woods, and I was going nowhere. When I left that guy's table, I went up to my room and into my room by myself in the dark, and got on my knees and cried out to God to forgive me." Well, you know, I do remember. Th- I was converted by that passage on Onan. <laughs> No, not really. But no, but, but I, I do remember. I mean, I remember. I mean, even that principle. One thing I've always remembered uh, from that is that, uh, and a principle that I've always tried to keep in my own preaching is, you know, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. I remember him talking about that, you know, in the section. You know, that part of that knowing scripture stayed with me, and that's an example. I mean, you know, you throw the word out there, you let God do the work, and that you know, you God will use whatever God wants to to bring you in. And I think that that's. Uh, I mean, I think those three things that you talked about is. Um, I mean, it's the best of the Calvinist tradition. It really is. I mean, again, we can go back. You, you know, you can. Greg finds it in Jesus. Uh, you know, certainly Augustine. <laughs> but you know, nonetheless, it's it's the, Sproul it's, found Jesus through Kohaleth, teacher, a book that if I'd been on the committee and said, "Should we keep this in?" I go, oh, "I don't know. I don't know." <laughs> it was good. I wasn't at Jamnia, which well, 
probably Jamie did. For many reasons. For many, many reasons. I wasn't many on that reasons. Com- I wasn't on that committee. But no, I think that is the power of the word proclaimed. And to, you know, for me, again, the ongoing legacy of what both classic Reformed theology and its various forms has, and, and really, and, and certainly this is R.C. Sproul as well, um, you know, that you, you try to, good preaching is you are teaching or whatever, you put the word out there, try to get out of the way and let God do God's thing in that. And I think that's a powerful reminder. And he was an important reminder of those things. And Greg, you mentioned Pittsburgh. That is, well, you know, he, because Dr. Gerstner was there. Right. Gerstner was Edward his, Scholar. And yeah, right. He was, a, he was Sproul's, you know, true mentor. And for many years, a lot of stuff from Gerstner came through Ligonier. Right. And, 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 and that's an important thing. And I, and Gerstner was very formative, uh, not only on Sproul, but on lots of people that heard him, I, I think. Uh, did you stuck? Did you? I don't think you probably in your era was were. Gershner was study. not there, but it's funny. Sue Nelson, who is kind of feminist process theologian of, Bre- of blessed memory, now she was talking about baptism, and she uh, believed in infant baptism, but she was telling the story that Dr. Gershner, this dean of Reformed theology, you know, this major American figure, was asked to do pulpit supply for a Baptist church, and they asked him if he would do an infant dedication. He, he was, had reservations, but he thought he could do it, and they said, well, then after the dedication ceremony, we go, at, we present the family with a white rose. It's very beautiful. He said, well, I could do it as long as the family is presented with a black rose. <laughs> To talk to represent the original sin of the child, right. <laughs> and I thought that's um, these are things I wish I would have said. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I would have done it too, but I would make sure my hands were very wet. Exactly. I did, yeah, you know, I would say, "Oh, I poured." Whoops! I dropped water on my dedication. <laughs> well, I do have a story and, about Gerstner yeah. with regard to his his role, which uh, I don't know if this would be amusing. You can cut this out. By the way, we should to. we should say for posterity. On Facebook Live, a, a great reform thinker in her own right has just joined. Cynthia Jarvis is is in is in the audience on our yeah. Facebook Live. Welcome, Cindy. Hello, Cindy. Well, it, l- let me say, m- one of my friends who I served with this uh, assistant pastor, associate pastor with him many years ago, he uh, he had Gerstner come to his church, and Gerstner, you know, was an expert on Jonathan Edwards, and this was a big Baptist church in Baltimore. This church was not a very reformed church. It didn't have any, and it was just typically, uh, you know, typical evangelical Baptist church. Gerstner came in to, and, you know, over some objections, but he came in and did a seminar that dealt with Jonathan Edwards and so, and revival. And so he was pre, but after like the second or third night, a couple of the guys in the, you know, deacons, were concerned because, like, this is a Presbyterian guy. And so their big issue was going to be, does he smoke or does he drink? That's the most important consideration. So they, they kind of cornered Gerstner. both. both right. yeah. And, and they, they cornered Gerstner. It's like, do you, you know, whatever. And they and you're like, well, you know, I myself do not do this, but I think this is a liberty. And then, and then he said this famous phrase, and I love this <laughs> phrase. He said, John Murray – the most holy man I've ever known would walk his Murray mile and he smoked a cigarette and his fingers were yellow. The most holy man that I've ever known. And all these guys were looking in there going, who's John Murray? I have no idea who John Murray is. <laughs> I, I, I remember someone telling me that uh, uh, it was uh, – 
Sproul was at a kind of doing a conference and uh, that event, someone came up, he was out, you know, he was smoking on the bench and he was trying to hide his cigarette while he was, you know, and smoke kept coming out of his back as he was trying to hide it as he was talking. But uh, yeah. It's another thing too, like I, I think, you know, one, I, one fascinating well, conference to me. Okay. Wait, I'm sorry. Before we get off the smoking thing, can I just say, you know, I years ago, years ago, I listened to RC's uh, introduction to logic, and he did a pretty good job of Aristotelian logic. And I was much, much younger, and you know, my first time around on that subject. And he had the best ad hominem example ever. Ad hominem, of course, is when you attack the person rather than the truth or the argument. Right, right. So, it's my favorite kind of And he which had would be, an, which, would, which would be, <laughs> in other words, the whole premise of Fox News. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, Bill, I'll let that slide. But here's the point. The greatest illustration I've ever heard of ad hominem is he says in his quotes and did, you know, when he's talking about logic, he's like ad hominem file. You're attacking the man. You're not attacking the argument that, you know, whatever is tr going on with the man is different than the argument. And he said, I've had people say to me, RC Sproul smokes. Therefore, Calvinism is false. <laughs> it's like that. And I, I still think that like ranks as the best example of an ad hominem false attack. Got to read more Nietzsche because there's they're full of it. <laughs> and Nietzsche endorses the ad hominem. Or, or, or it's it's uh, it's the great delight of the Erasmus Luther. Yeah, who exactly? <laughs> so I well, well, but see, but Sproul said at that in that conversation in, in that talk, he said, of course, you know, he's like my smoking may affect my sanctification. But how does it affect the truth of Calvinism? <laughs> I, yeah, I think it just affected his lungs. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, and I think yeah. it did. Although he lived pretty long, yeah. some people genetically, you know, don't, you know, get yeah, better cards. Yeah. I, I think I, you know, I often thought a great American church religious sociology or history conference could be done if you just looked at the prominent people that were affected by the Jesus movement. Like, yeah, like yeah. you think of Doug Wilson and Brian Zahn, right? Like. Yeah. Brian's on, you know, Pentecostal yeah. kind of turn pacifist, progressive, right. and you have Doug Wilson, who's you know polemical, controversial, and 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 big reform thinker, you know, and these guys both they would agree on nothing, and yet they both came out of this Jesus and and everybody in between. I mean, who? Yeah. So, so I think to a similar degree, what about R.C. Sproul? You would have people. Oh, he married Tim and Kathy Keller. You think of people that. Um, like somebody like Michael Horton, right? Who's a, a leading kind of reform voice among evangelicals and, and beyond and, and people that would oppose him right. <laughs> and think he's sort of too Lutheran or too this or too that. And so many of these people who are probably involved in, uh, polemical conversations, some more generous than others, you know, the nature of the conversation yeah. are, would all go back and have some connection to R.C. Sproul. Well, I, and I also think he represents what, you know, the best of what University Press was in those days. You know, they were really putting out great books that were thinking books uh, across the spectrum. You know, they were printing R.C. Sproul, Loveless. They were, uh, Creeve's first books were from University Paul, uh, Peter Creeve, uh, Ron Sider. So there was a kind of a broad spectrum of really, I think, people trying to, whether it was, you know, trying to push the evangelical conscience, you know, think about, you know, Robert, Robert Weber at uh, Wheaton at that point. It was a wonderful kind of ways of kind of bringing evangelicals um, purposely or in inadvertently into the great tradition. I mean, whether you're talking about, you know, people discovering reform theology through people like Sproul, people like Ron Sider, who helped us remember that, gosh, not caring about the poor is kind of a new phenomenon in Christianity. Um, 
our Weber talking about worship. Um, right. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think it was a. I mean, credit kind of go, credit should be given to what University Press was in those days because they were. You know, I remember just being like hungry. I would go just what was look, go at the University Press shelf at the book at the Christian bookstore, and you know, I think so. That's there was a kind of. I mean, there's a lot of talk about what's wrong with the evangelical movement right now, and that's that's legitimate. But a lot of those of us who critique that part of where we got our training wheels were with people like R.C. Sproul and, and, uh, and others. Yeah, and would you say also that that you know I heard Dave Fitch who was no fan of. Of, of, of Kuiper and that tradition, but say that what Kuiper did for evangelicals was allow them to love culture. And I feel like what R.C. Sproul did for a lot of evangelicals was allow them to love the life of the mind and the Western intellectual tradition. He did these wonderful popular classes on, yeah. you, know, you know, everything from logic to Aquinas and all these. And, and, and even I mean, on one level, you could look at him as a cantankerous, non you could say, well, he's the kind of Protestant that, that, that um, could be cantankerous on some points, and yet on other points, uh, in fact, many Reformed people said he wasn't cantankerous enough with his embrace of certain Catholic thinking, especially kind of the medieval synthesis sort of stuff. Well, right? I, I think, yeah, I think he was a human. I mean, I think he was a humanist the way Calvinist was a humanist in some ways. I know it's a dirty word in some ways, but but I mean, in terms of trying to re to try to ground a biblical faith, um, a heart faith in something that actually can can survive every wind of doctrine and every change of emotion. I think you know, that's, that's part of what the Reformed tradition being interjected into the evangelical experience does. Well, I think that it's important to realize the, the stated, you know, official kind of direction from Ligonier, which was a bridge or a transition from Sunday school to seminary. So, you know, this was kind huh. of huh. a new, you know, yeah. if you, you can read that in the article from Christianity Today, but like a, you know, they're, they're trying to provide something that goes deeper than Sunday school, deeper than what you would get in a church, and yet not formal certification right. in terms of seminary. But of course, Ligonier has now produced a, a seminary or a Bible college called Reformation Bible College. So they kind of have transitioned into producing something more, you know, academically um, important and, and, you know, significant. But I do think that there are a lot of people that benefited from those, you know, from those resources that, that, that I, took them to yeah. the next level, you know? I think that's, yeah, I think that's a great point. I think and often, I mean, on one level, there could be legitimate yeah, theological, philosophical critique of some of what they did, but they weren't trying. I think that's a very good point. They were trying to, they were speaking to the lay person or a lot of us who were, you know, unordained Christian workers or whatever. And I, you know, again, one of the things I think that's been really lost in at least a lot of the Reformed tradition is just the necessary, period, but but I'm thinking the greatness of the Reformed tradition was the educated laity, you know, the elder the elder who had a sermon in their pocket, you know, if, <laughs> if the horse threw the minister on the way to the church, they had a sermon in their pocket ready to pull out. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, you know, again, you know, most of uh, the majority of my experience has been in the mainline traditions, but I've, I even find one of the things that has been surprising over the years when I teach evangelicals, you know, I grew up in an evangelical tradition where you knew your Bible, you knew it in and out. And uh, we, we, we need more of that spirit of what Ligonier tried to do. I, I didn't grow up in that tradition. And several times on the podcast, I have beat Bill in Bible trivia. I just wanted to know that. Yep. For what it's worth. Yeah, I remember right. this uh, Okay, let me, <laughs> I remember uh, Bible, Bible trivia for both of you guys. I just rewrote ordination standard stuff for our denomination. Right. Hands on right, buzzers. So, so let's, all right, hands on buzzers. Here we go. Uh, no, list no, of no. minor prophets, go. 
Oh, jeez. Yeah, all right. Well, I'm first of all, I, I object to them being called minor. All right. No. Uh, <laughs> I reject the premise of your question. Oh, Amos, Obadiah, Haggai, Zachariah, Okay. So anyway, but uh, and is Obadiah even really a prophet? I mean, was that you know? I mean, was it even? I mean, he hardly even got started. In the <laughs> exactly. Amos. Joe Amos. Remember that Christian rock band, Joe Amos? I like them. They okay. just, I guess they just, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> That's because of Joe Osteen. Never to be Whose bathroom I used last time I, I was in Houston. Okay. Well, I think, where, I think uh, where is Jethro Tull in the Bible? Oh, um, you're right. No, I'm such a right heap. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just went there. Trick question. Jethro Tull. What, oh. what order is Jethro Tull in the Minor Prophets? Locomotion. <laughs> Okay, just joking. Anyway. All right, all right. I got the, so that's not in the Bible. But anyway, um, you know, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, blessed are those who die in the Lord. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because that's what he said six years before his death. Um, when we close our eyes in death, we do not cease to be alive. Rather, we experience a continuation of personal consciousness. No person is more conscious, more aware, and more alert than when he passes through the veil from this world into the next. Six years ago, he wrote that um, before he passed oh. away. Wow. Well, and Greg, thank you for joining us. And by the well, way, if you need to do the minor do, prophets in an ordination exam, that's do you maybe, mind that's if I, they, if they uh, don't know it by then, that's not good. <laughs> do, do you mind if I read one thing that I'm sure that RC would have wanted everyone to know from, Absolutely. His, from his own Presbyterian tradition? This is from the Shorter Catechism, question 37. Go. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? That's a pretty important question to me. And this is the answer. It's very profound to me. It brought tears to my eyes when I reflected upon it today. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Greg. And thank you all who tuned in on Facebook. And um, yeah, may RC rest in peace and in God's grace and glory. Amen. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And the morning breaks eternal, bright and fair When the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore And the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there When the roll is called up yonder When the roll is called up yonder When the roll is called up yonder when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Let us labor for the Master from dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all His wondrous love and care. Then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, 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 I'll be there.